Now, back to our sermon series. Uh, if you're just joining us, we're in week five of a series looking at the life of David in First and Second Samuel. Today, we're going to complete the First Samuel narrative, and we're going to see the David and Saul dynamic come to a rather crashing conclusion. Uh, for the last five chapters, David has been on the run. Saul's been obsessed, obsessed with killing him. And uh, in this section, Saul and David both encounter a crisis. And their response to that crisis reveals where they run to for security. And, and the truth is, I think we can all relate to that. Because all of us want security in our lives. We want some form of protection. So I would just ask you, where do you find your security. Security is such a felt need in the lives of Americans that it's given rise to an entire industry, the industry of home security. Does anybody out there have a ring, doorbell, or a blink security system? You know, periodically I walk through Costco and I see these items displayed several times a year. Uh, these two popular systems offer video surveillance of your home sent right to your smartphone. What's the tagline? Blink and your home. Right, nothing's going to get by you. Although sometimes people use these cameras to simply capture funny moments. If you go to YouTube right now and you type in top ring videos, you will find videos of dogs tackling their owners, Girl Scouts making cookie sales pitches, birds escaping their cages, and my favorite, squirrels chasing donuts. So go check it out on your, on your free time. Uh, it's a true story though. What's on your ring video? Now, given their popularity, it made me wonder why people get security systems in the first place. And if you did a quick search on Google, you'll find these top reasons. Aside from protection, people want them for, it, it lowers your homeowner's insurance, amen? Um, it protects your home from fires, avoiding a crisis. It keeps thieves out. And if there's a medical emergency, it's really handy to have a camera to see where people are. Now, my favorite feature is the two-way talk through the cameras, which if one of your kids is disobeying you and you're not home, all you have to do is speak into the camera, and it's like the voice of God coming down and disciplining them. <clears throat> Tell me you've not done it before. <laughs> the bottom line is this. We all like to be safe. <clears throat> we want to be protected. Where do you find your security? Now, both David and Saul will be forced to answer that question in our story today. And if you look at chapter 30, there's an interesting story where David encounters a crisis. He and his army have returned from an expedition. They find their enemies have attacked the camp. They've burned it. It's on fire. They've kidnapped their wives and their kids. And we're told that David and his people, when they saw this, raised their voices and wept. The crisis caused them to rethink their security system. And we read this in verse 6. David was greatly distressed, <clears throat> but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. I'll say that again. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. In other words, he found his security in God. And all the reasons people buy a security system today happen to David. Fire, theft, break-ins. Moments of crisis like the one David experienced cause us to do at least two things. Number one, we assess our current security system. And number two, it reveals where we place our security. Moments of crisis reveal where our security rests. Have you ever experienced a moment of crisis that left you distressed like David? Now, crisis can be defined this way, an emotionally stressful event or traumatic change in a person's life. 
And I would just simply ask you, ask you to consider what crisis are you facing right now? Now, perhaps you just lost something. Maybe a loved one died. You experienced a recent relational breakup. The company laid you off. Your lifelong dream has gone unfulfilled. A hurricane washed away your house, and it feels like a thief broke in and just stole something from you, ripped it away. Maybe your crisis has taken the form of a conflict, which could be an external conflict with somebody else, or it could be an internal conflict, where right now you're wrestling with your calling, your direction, your meaning, your purpose. You might be walking through a quarter life, a midlife a late life crisis of some kind, you're asking what comes next, right? Should I, can I retire? What school should I go to? Should I take that job? And those crises might reveal insecurities inside our hearts. And some moments of crisis, they, they have ripple effects for a long time. You don't see them coming, but those effects stick with you. You get a terrifying health diagnosis. Um, the birth of a special needs child, or a child is, is walking away from the Lord, and it causes distress. For some of us, right now, the fire is burning red hot. And what we want is security and protection, but it just feels like we're walking through chaos and confusion. What crisis are you facing? And how will you respond? Where will you run? Remember, David, even though he was distressed, strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Where do you find your security? <clears throat> now, the world offers a lot of security options, and so in today's message, what I want to show you is how to evaluate and choose the best security system in history. The first Samuel chapter 26 to 31 narrative arc uncovers three common security systems we run to. The first one we're going to see is weapons. The second one, magic. <laughs> and then the, f- the final one is the voice of God. Moments of crisis reveal our security. The question is, which one of those are you choosing? So let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal what's in our hearts today. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this opportunity to share your word. And Lord, I pray that my words would fade out and your words would would come through, Holy Spirit. I pray that you would meet each person here today um, who's here, who's watching, who's listening later on, Lord. May, May you just speak to them. Holy Spirit, may you speak to us this morning, bring conviction, bring hope, restore joy to our lives as we know that our security is found in you. We pray that in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. All right. Weapons. Let's pick up our story in 1 Samuel chapter 26. Um, After a break last week, we learned that Saul, he's still chasing David. He's he's just hadn't caught him yet. He keeps chasing him. And after he gets some intel on David's location, we read this in verse 1. It says, So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness. Now, fair warning, there is a decent amount of names and locations in the text today. It's just a classic Old Testament narrative. Um, I'm going to try to minimize those as much as I can. Um, But uh, we read right here that Saul is camped in the north of Israel. Um, Ziph, the wilderness where David is, is down in the south. If you look at this map right here, you see Saul was up in Gibeah, and he came all the way down to Ziph, the wilderness there in the south. A pretty uh, long journey in his day. Um, In chapters 24 and 26, David has been given two opportunities to kill Saul, and both times he refuses 
to use his weapon to take power for himself. In chapter 24, you may remember Saul was alone in a cave doing his business, and uh, David finds him. He could kill him, but instead he just cuts his robe. And then in chapter 26, a repeat scene, David and his army follow, or I'm sorry, Saul and his army follow David to the wilderness, but then as soon as they get there, they decide it's bedtime, and all of them go to sleep. And then David eventually finds Saul, and he gets an idea. Look at verse 7. It says, so David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. So we learn that David has recruited Abishai, who's his nephew, uh, making this a family affair, for a covert operation. And somehow they managed to tiptoe through the camp and nobody wakes up, which that was interesting to me this week. How do they get through thousands of people all the way to Saul with nobody waking up? And I thought, you know, maybe somebody's snoring. Uh, you know, they're, they're tiptoeing through. And, and, and some of you are saying right now, listen, if somebody tried to break in my home and they got to my bedroom, I probably wouldn't hear them either because uh, my spouse snores so loudly. <clears throat> well, the word sleeping means they were so deep in sleep that it was almost trance-like. And if you read further on in verse 12, it seems to indicate that God was somehow protecting David, allowing him, I think, to get into a situation where he had to choose God. Now, one final detail. What was next to Saul? His spear, right? His weapon. Now, let's talk about weapons for just a second. When I say weapons, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? Is it guns? swords, tanks, a large military force, bows and arrows. Weapons are necessary at times for protection. You may need to defend yourself if attacked, but we should never abuse our weapons or use them carelessly. At the same time, we have to recognize there's evil in the world. That's, that's the tension, right? But I think we all have access to more common weapons, and I've identified three. It's not exhaustive, but three common weapons that we use. The first one is words. Words can be wielded as weapons. Some of us know how to say something just the right way to cut the legs out from under other other people. Our position in life can be used as a weapon. You're the boss. No one questions you. You're the victim, and you leverage it for all it's worth. Our mind can be used as a weapon. We know how to strategize and outsmart our opponent. The point is just simply this. Weapons provide security. And I would dare say everyone has used weapons to protect themselves. The question is, are you using them responsibly? Now, the last message I gave, 1 Samuel 18 to 20, I made a big deal about Saul and his spear, right? He even sleeps with it, we learn in this chapter. Now, just to point out, if you're sleeping with your spear or some weapon, it probably, probably means you have some security issues. <laughs> it's a weapon. Saul abused his weapon. He didn't use it to defend, but to attack and destroy. We've already learned that he's, he's tried to kill David, like how many times with the spear? Uh, in chapter 22, he kills the priests at Nob because he thinks they're protecting David. Both are threats to his power. So his spear, his weapon, it brings him a, a sense of security. And I would just ask today, what's, what is your spear? In fact, one commentator noted that since his spear is always with him, he might, he might use it like a scepter, like a symbol of his power. This weapon showed he had strength, and that strength makes him feel secure, which is not bad, 
but it can be misused. And so now, conversely, David has a choice. He could take this weapon, he could use it against his enemy, he could kill Saul. In fact, his nephew Abishai, he tells David, he eggs him on, he says, David, what are you waiting for? Like, pick up the spear, take the spear. Let's, let's end it now. Come on, David. <clears throat> what will David do? Look in verse 9. It says, David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? The Lord will strike him, or his day will come, or he will go down in battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David says, he's God's anointed. God's going to take care of him. Same thing he said in chapter 24. In this moment, we see why the security of weapons can be so alluring to our hearts. Because what does Abishai say? He says, listen, it's just a weapon. Take the spear. Let's end it here and now. And David says, no, no, we will wait on the Lord. And David, for whatever faults he has in this story and the whole narrative, he gets this part right. And he teaches us a lesson about security. And that's this, secure people are willing to wait on God's timing. Secure people are willing to wait on God's timing. They don't misuse their weapons. They use their strength when appropriate In moments when they could do evil, they choose not to. And I want to camp here for just a few minutes because this was so interesting. As I was studying this this week, I was saying, let me put myself in David's position. Put yourself in David's position here. After everything that's going on, would you take the spear? Would you use Saul's own weapon against him? You would say, man, poetic justice, right? Well, if we're honest, the temptation is real. And it happens every day. So, Think about, just think for a moment about the last time you had a fight with your spouse or, or a close friend or a coworker. Um, how tempting was it to use their own words against them? Right? You had a choice. You could, you could have prayed for that person and waited on God's movement. Did you? Or maybe somebody used, used words against you. It isn't the temptation to use your own words, your weapons, to defend yourself, to justify yourself, even if what they're saying is wrong. And when you retaliate and you strike a blow, it's intoxicating. Right? It can make you feel powerful, like you won the battle. But what does it reveal about your heart and where do you place your security? So imagine in those moments if you don't speak Rather, you keep your mouth closed, you pray and you ask God to intervene to change that person's heart. How hard is it to keep your mouth closed? It's really hard. But it shows a heart so secure in God's provision and protection that we're willing to wait on his timing. In those moments, you have the choice between the spear and God. So if you look back in the story, we see that David does disarm Saul, and then he goes to the other side of the mountain, he starts shouting, he's waking everybody up in the middle of the night. Not a good idea, but he does. And Saul wakes up, and what does Saul say? Saul says, is that your voice, my son David? Maybe there's a a little bit of irritation in his voice here. And David said, yes, it's my voice, my lord, O king. Why does my lord pursue after his servant? What have I done? What evil is on my hands? 
And, and David, listen, David lays it out here. If you read his speech in verse 19 and 20, you can hear the anguish in his voice. He says, what have I done? Right? Has, and he says to Saul, has God caused you to do this or is it men? Right? If a man is forcing you, if a man is whispering in your ear, let that person be accursed, he says. Literally. In other words, David says, if Saul's pursuit of him is not from God, it's evil. And look at how Saul responds. He says, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will do no more harm to you, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and made a great mistake. This is kind of the same thing he said back in chapter 24, and here we are again in chapter 26. And you're saying to yourself, well, what are we to do with this? Saul is saying he's sorry, right? He seems to be repenting. I put that in scare quotes. But it's old hat at this point, right? How many, he's done this multiple times. Samuel confronts him in chapter 15. He apologizes to David multiple times. It's gonna be okay, but yet the spear still flies. Nothing's changed. And so I think Saul's repentance here is another sign of his insecurity. It's a false repentance that he wants to make him look good, which teaches us another lesson, and, that, and that's this. Secure people display deep, true repentance. Secure people display deep, true repentance. Now you think for a second, you're asking, how do I discern between true repentance and false repentance? And the reality is false repentance can often be used as a defensive weapon where we're not being honest. Right? In other words, Saul simply says, you know what, David? Okay, I, I get everything's happened, but I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Let, let's, just, let's just get everything back to normal and move on. He wants it to be easy. But the astute reader would look at this and say, listen, hold up a second here, Saul. Like, wait, wait a second. How many times have you used your spear, your weapon, to, kill, to try and kill David? You've devoted how much of your life to, to pursuing David? His death literally has been your life's mission for how long? And all you can say is, sorry? Yeah, it, it, it doesn't seem to display a truly changed heart because deep true repentance is not easy. It's hard. It often costs us something and it takes a long time. Deep true repentance hurts in a good way and it leads to true transformation. It requires that we place our lives in God's hand and say, God, I'm gonna confess this. No matter what happens, I'm gonna find my security in you. Deep True repentance means we lay down our weapons, we disarm ourselves, and we trust God. And look at how David responds in verse 22. He looks at him and says, here's the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. In fact, you can almost hear in David's voice that he doesn't believe it. He says, here's your weapon, Saul. Come over here and prove to me that you mean what you say, I don't think you're going to really disarm yourself. And in verse 22 to 24, David gives another speech where he reaffirms his trust in God's deliverance, that his security is in him, and then we hear Saul's final words to David in verse 25. He says, blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. And this is how their relationship ends. Like, David and Saul are never going to see each other again. 
And so it's fair to say there's some unresolved issues here, okay? And, and perhaps right now you're listening to that and you say, you know what, I got some unresolved issues in my life right now. And, and some of those issues may be, you know, outside of my control. Some of those may be within my control. The question for each of us today is this, what weapons are you holding on to? Are you willing to disarm yourself and place your trust in God? Now, I recognize there, there's some tension here, right? Some, some of you are objecting right now in your mind, and you're saying, well, you know, know what? Sometimes, sometimes we need to use our weapons for good. And I would say, yes. Yes, I agree. Sometimes. Sometimes we need to fight. But we also have to be discerning. And remember what David said to Goliath, right? The battle belongs to the Lord, Our security is not ultimately in our weapons, but in our God. And if you're feeling that tension right now, I think think that's the right place to be. You're asking that question. Now, on the other hand, some of us, like Saul, use our spears too much and in incorrect ways. We like wielding power because it's comfortable, and it gives us this false sense of security. But those weapons can cause immense harm to our relationships, many of whom we love. In our moments of crisis, the temptation to pick up and aggressively use your weapon is powerful. And I think what the Lord is speaking to us today is just simply this. He says, lay down your spear and be careful when and why you pick it up. Find your ultimate security in me. Are you willing to do that? Now, the final five chapters of 1 Samuel, we see David and Saul offering a, a case study of what happens when we don't find our security in God. Sometimes they run parallel, sometimes they, they overlap. And so after the events of chapter 26, David decides enough is enough. In chapter 27, he goes to live with King Achish of the Philistines in Gath, ironically, where Goliath was from. And he does this despite his speech to Saul because he thinks he's going to be, um, because he's, he doesn't trust God's protection. David thinks that if he lives with the army of, his, of Israel's enemies, that he's going to be safe and secure from Saul. And then David turns into a mercenary for the Philistine king. He picks up his weapon. He lies to the Philistine king, claiming he's going out and raiding the Israelites, but instead he's attacking Israel's enemy, and in brutal fashion, he's making sure everybody is killed so that nobody can tell what happened, and he covers himself. David does not get off innocent in this story, and while his actions earn the king's trust, it puts David in a compromising position if you read chapter 29, because he almost has to go out and fight his own people. Now, for Saul's part, he descends to the depths of despair. He no longer hears God. And in chapter 28, he shows us the next place we run to for security, and that is magic. Magic. Now, the story picks up in chapter 28, verse 2, and we read this. Now, Samuel had died, and all Israel mourned for him. And Saul put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. You say, all right, now it's getting good. Mediums, necromancers, let's, let's dig in here. Now, at the beginning of the chapter, we get two important editorial notes which set up the scene. First, Samuel, the prophet of Israel, he's dead. Yes, we learned that a couple, last week, but it's reiterated here. Second, we learned that earlier in, in his career, Saul had obeyed God and done the right thing. He expelled the mediums and the necromancers from the land, and the author wants us to know this. The prophet of God is dead, and false magic is illegal in Israel, which is why 
uh, which will show us why the following scene both makes sense and is shocking. So let's keep reading. Verse, verse 4. It says, The Philistines assembled, and Saul gathered all Israel. And when Saul saw the armies of the Philistines, he was what? He was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. So the Philistines are ready for battle. And we learn both here and in chapter 31 that Saul was on Mount Gilboa, which meant he had the high ground, thinking he's safe and secure, he's got the advantage. But then he looks out on the valley and sees this huge army, angry, armed to the teeth. And what do we learn? We learn that Saul is afraid. He's in crisis. What's he going to do? Look at verse 6. It says, And Saul inquired of the Lord, and the Lord did not answer him. Saul said to his servants, seek out for me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, behold, there's a medium at Endor, which is, was a place pretty close to where the battle was being fought. Now, before each battle in the past, Saul would ask Samuel if the Lord was going to give him favor, which, I mean, to be fair, it's a life or death situation. I've never run into battle, but I probably would be scared too. Um, But then because of his disobedience in the past, God is silent right here. And Saul is terrified. He's so terrified that he takes the step of seeking guidance from another, from a medium who has been made illegal in the land, but yet he goes. Now, let's pause here for a second and talk about mediums. What about mediums? Uh, Let me explain Mediums and necromancers. And, and since, listen, since Halloween is just a couple weeks down the road, uh, this might spark some interest here. So it, w- it was common practice in Israel, among Israel's neighbors in the ancient Near East to attempt to contact the spirit world. A medium, literally the Hebrew word is ghostwife, right? Somebody who was skilled in contacting the spirit world, particularly those who were dead. So put simply, this woman could talk to ghosts. Now, she accomplished this through necromancy, which was also known as black magic or sorcery, and that's why people who did this were known as witches and wizards. And a common practice among them was to communicate with the dead for the purpose of knowing the future. Now, what I find interesting about this is that this this practice, this fascination with this practice, it's still common today. If you do a quick search of, of shows about mediums, as their premise, you will find a bunch. Like there, there was, there's Long Island Medium, there's a Hollywood Medium, there's the Seatbelt Psychic, uh, there's, uh, there's Rescue Medium, there's the Ghost Whisperer. If you drive around town right here within a few miles, you will see psychic storefront properties. I always ask myself, who's going into those places? But apparently they're still open. People love witches and wizards and Harry Potter, and who doesn't think Gandalf is the best, which of course he is. But... The question is, is this real? Is it real? Yes, and we must avoid it. Now, the Bible affirms there is a supernatural unseen world. Angels and demons do exist. Paul tells us that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. In our modern scientific world, though, we tend to think these things are archaic. They're of the past, but they're not, and Saul, Saul's action offers us a warning. The scene now is depicted very negatively, and here's the first clue in verse 8. So Saul disguised himself and put on the garments, and he went, he and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. 
And he said, divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. Now, let's review what's happening here. Okay, Saul, Saul tried talking to God, but God would not answer Saul because he has not repented and he's now experiencing a form of judgment. So in desperation, Saul runs under cover of night to find security in magical practices. Instead of truly repenting for his actions, he's actually bringing more judgment on himself. Which really should make us ask this question. Is there anything I am doing disguised in the dark? Because the things we do in the dark reveal our insecurities and a lack of trust in God. Now, what does that look like today? There's a lot of applications, but let's, let's stick with the Halloween theme, which is right around the corner. Because there are some current cultural practices that have just become innocuous, right? For example, Ouija boards, right? Maybe you know somebody who has it. Uh, you see them in shows all the time. But Ouija boards, as they're depicted in movies, they, they have the purpose of communicating with spirits. Literally, it's a talking board. It's a talking board. And they're produced by the popular game maker Hasbro, same guys who do Transformers, all right? Tarot cards, or another game we think is, it's not a big deal, but many versions of tarot cards are linked to occultic practices and can be used for divination, like what Saul was trying to do. Astrology is another common cultural artifact. In fact, I'm told it's pretty popular amongst younger people. And many people, even Christians, will innocently learn their sign of the zodiac, thinking that it offers a clue into their identity. Even certain, certain yoga practices where we invite spirits to inhabit our bodies through meditation should be avoided. This all falls under the larger New Age movement, which Christian philosopher Doug Grotheis has roundly condemned. He, he writes this. He says, as New Age seekers dive into spiritual experiences, they leave themselves vulnerable to both fraud and spiritual deception. Some seekers are primed for deception because, listen to this, they are desperate, hurting people looking for an answer, any answer. He says, if Christians encounter such souls, a word of warning is a good tonic. Even if we can't lead them to Christ just then, we can warn them of occult dangers and offer the safety of knowing Christ as victor over sin and Satan. Now, Why does he say people engage in these practices? They are in crisis and they're looking for guidance in life. And I think this scene teaches us beware. Because in each of these practices, you are inviting a spirit that is not of the true God to speak to you. And their ultimate goal is deception. The Christian must engage in spiritual warfare because only the Holy Spirit gives proper guidance. Only in Christ can you find your true identity. And only his revealed word offers true meaning, purpose, and guidance for life. Now Saul is engaging in this practice and he knows it's wrong. And that's why he covers it up. So secondly, in that scene, we see that the practice of divining or calling up a spirit involved this occult-like religious ceremony. Like in that day, there was a wedding between magic and religion. And typically, what the medium would do is they, they, would, they would put salve on their face to contact the spirit of the dead. That They would have these skulls or figurines in their house. There would be this deep like pit somewhere in their house where they would, they would literally throw offerings into it 
They, they would kill dogs, they would kill pigs and throw them into this pit as an offering, and then they would wait for the spirit to arise and speak. Now, I share that. might sound like a lot of details, but I share that because that's how low Saul had sank. His prayers didn't work, so we went somewhere else for security. Why? Because our crises reveal where we place our security. Now, before they do this practice, the medium offers him one more chance to end it. Look at verse 9. She says, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he's cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death. But Saul swore to her by the Lord, by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. So she reminds him what he did, which was a good God-honoring action. It was what the king was supposed to do. But instead of stopping, Saul decides he's above the law and he's gonna break it. So here's how the scene plays out. The, The spirit of Samuel shows up The medium knows it's Saul's identity. She's shocked because she's probably wondering, wow, it worked this time. (laughs) Saul tells her not to worry. He has what he wants, and the spirit of Samuel speaks to Saul, and this is what he says. Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I was sleeping, Saul. Why did you wake me up? I'm in great distress for the, Saul says, I'm in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me. He answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore... I've summoned you, Samuel, to tell me what to do. I'm in distress, right? I'm in crisis. God is silent. Tell me what to do, Samuel. And Samuel does. But instead of giving Saul hope, he pronounces judgment. He reiterates everything he told him when he was alive, that Saul did not obey God. He's lost everything. But one more thing he says. He says, Saul, tomorrow you're going to die. This is the end Judgment has come. Now, before I give you Saul's response, it's worth stating that a lot of people have a problem with this scene. They ask the question, is this really Samuel, right? Or is it some demon speaking condemnation as part of an occult-like practice? Is God somehow involved? Well, there's different theories, but I I tend to think that God intervened here and allowed Samuel to speak to Saul one final time because he's, you know, he's God, His appearance and his words, they seem to indicate that in in the text. And that doesn't mean, though, that God condones what Saul did. Instead, it highlighted his disobedience further and would lead to his death the following day. And Saul now feels the weight of this, verse 20. It says, Then Saul at once fell full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. That's how bad the stress was. So Saul realizes what he's done. His action has not produced security, but terror. And, you know, I read a thing like this this week, and I say, what are, what are we supposed to do with this? Right? <laughs> These Old Testament narratives, what are you supposed to do with this? Well, one of the most interesting pieces of this story, I think, is the fact that Saul once was a king who obeyed the Lord and governed rightly. In earlier days, he cast out the mediums, but in the last days, he embraces them. And the the interesting thing I ask myself is, how does he get here? Which is a fair warning to us all. We all can fall. Sometimes the darkness looks more enticing than the light. And if you don't believe that, let, let let me ask you this question. Have you ever felt like your prayers have failed you? 
Okay, true, I mean, true story here. Have you ever felt like you prayed about something and God just didn't come through? And, and the voice of God felt silent. And, and I've heard many, many stories of people, they once attended church, they once claimed to be Christians, and then later in life they abandoned their faith. And, and you ask yourself, why was that? Well, I mean, multiple reasons people give, but one common, one common thing I hear threaded through all of that is just simply this. God didn't answer my prayers in a crisis, right? I prayed and God didn't heal my child, right? I prayed and God didn't restore my marriage. I prayed and God allowed me to lose my, my job and my house. I prayed and I still, I still haven't found a spouse. I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and God was silent. It's in those moments that you have to ask yourself, where will you run? New age, occultic practices are not gonna bring guidance, only pain and deception. We're all looking for security, especially in a crisis. And it's in those moments that we could pick up our weapons, we could cast a spell, or we could listen to the voice of God. And if you want true security, this is the only place to run. This point brings us full circle back to the beginning of the message, right? Great David was greatly distressed, but he strengthened himself in the Lord his God. In his distress, David honestly sought God. Now, in contrast, one of the hardest and most unsettling parts of chapter 28 is the fact that Saul seems to seek God, but God is silent. He doesn't answer. And as a modern reader, probably you're sitting, you're sitting here right now saying, that doesn't sit right with me, right? You're starting to ask, well, if I'm in a crisis, is God going to answer my prayers? Right? Will he be silent in my moment of need. Again, what do we do with this? Well, truthfully, I, I think this all has to do with Saul's motives in seeking God. In chapter 28, verse 6, Saul has followed all the acceptable methods of seeking God, dreams and prophecies, etc. But ever since Samuel's confrontation in chapter 15, it's very clear that Saul has sought God with selfish motives. And so the New Testament writer James warns us about an improper heart posture when seeking God. He writes this in chapter 4 of his letter. When you ask, when you pray, you do not receive. Why? Because you ask with wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your pleasure. And so James seems to be saying wrong motives in prayer, they're a problem. Saul's heart was not right with God. There was a barrier between him and God. His sin and his self-centeredness did not allow him to hear God's voice. And, and in reality, I gotta tell you, I don't think he really wanted to hear from God. I think he wanted God just to give in to his demands. And God doesn't honor that. In fact, commentator Bill Arnold made this observation. He said, Yahweh has long since stopped answering Saul since the king is more inclined to make his mind up before asking. And so if, if, if you're here today and you haven't heard God's voice clearly, you might start asking yourself, is my heart right when I ask? Do we really want to hear God's voice really? Or have the world's messages inflamed by our sinful desires caused debris to fall over our heart? I don't think Saul really wanted to hear from God. And, and he had a mountain of unrepentant sin covering his heart. In his book, 
Healing Care, Healing Prayer, author Terry Wardle offers a really helpful illustration on how the Holy Spirit reveals his presence and guidance when we surrender our lives to him. He offers this image. He offers the image of a spring in the ground. And he says during the winter months when the, you know, the, the snow comes, there's, there's rocks and debris that fall over the opening of this spring. And in order for the spring to flow freely when the warmer weather comes, that debris, it needs to be removed. Otherwise, it blocks It blocks the flowing of the water. His point is this. If you want to hear God's voice clearly, the debris of sin, we got to to work on clearing it from our lives and our hearts. And and David David shows us this, not just in chapter 30, but also in his well-known Psalm 51. After his great sin with Bathsheba, which we'll get to in a few weeks, uh, David confesses his sin, and then he prays this prayer. He says, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Both David and Saul had sin debris that had to be cleared away, but it's only David that is recorded praying a prayer like this. How about your heart? Perhaps God feels distant because there's unconfessed sin in your life. It's in those moments that we have to run to the cross. We have to fall at the feet of our great high priest. And and that's what David does. Chapter 30, in his moment of need, when his camp has been raided and it's on fire and there's a crisis, what does he do? He calls the priest and he seeks God. David was distressed. He strengthened himself in the Lord as God. And David said to Abiathar, the what? The priest Bring me the ephod, which was the the piece of clothing that you used in prayer. And so Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord. So, So what a contrast in pictures right here. Instead of a witch, David runs to the priest. Instead of calling up the dead, David inquires of the Lord. He answers, David obeys. And then the rest of chapter 30, David goes on to wipe out the Amalekites, his enemies, which ironically, he completes the task that God gave to Saul in chapter 15. And so the contrast is clear. When seeking God's voice, are we seeking the priest or the witch? The Old Testament book of 1 Chronicles chapter 10 records the same scene that we see in 1 Samuel 31, Saul's final battle with the Philistines. We see the fruit of Endor. The chapter picks up in the middle of the battle. The Israelites are being routed. Saul's sons, including Jonathan, they're all killed. And in in that moment, when all hope seems lost, Saul asks his armor bearer to take his life. And when he refuses, Saul finishes the deed. We read this. It says, therefore Saul took his sword and fell upon it. And this is such a sad, sad ending for Saul. Dies by his own hand. And everyone in his circles of influence, they die too. Their bodies are strewn across the battlefield. Saul's life ends in such gruesome fashion that the Philistines find him on the battlefield. They cut off his head and they bring his armor to one of their temples. The exact same thing that David did to Goliath back in 17. Then, in utter humiliating fashion, they nail his and his son's decapitated bodies to a wall for everybody walking by to see. For the Philistines, the message is clear. The king is dead. Our God is stronger. 
And, and I know those, those details are graphic, but I think that they are there to show us the tragedy of Saul's life. This was the fruit of his disobedience, the fruit of pursuing security apart from God. He dies by his own weapon with no word from his magical pursuit, and God is silent. And you ask yourself again, why? Well, 1 Chronicles 10 adds an editorial note that 1 Samuel 31 leaves out. It says this, So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium, specifically seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Saul faced judgment because God can't bless sin. And that's the pattern in so many Old Testament stories. They end on this really, really low note. You're like, man, this is depressing. What do we do with this? Well, first recognize that because Saul and his sons have died, David is now clear to ascend the throne, where we'll pick up last week. David didn't kill him. Saul died. David's obedience is going to be rewarded. Now, secondly, it brings us back to our key question for today. Where do you find your security? And I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. They're going to play one final song here in just a moment. But the reality is we all want security. And, and there was three really clear paths in the story today. You can find security in weapons. And perhaps right now you're living with a spear in your hand, ready to, ready to fight the battles on your own. But a clear message from the entire book of 1 Samuel is this. The battle belongs to the Lord. You could find it in magic. I mean, chapters 28 and 30 offer us the choice between the witch and the priest, and the outcomes of those paths are quite different. Or you could find your security in God's voice. Are you reading his word, seeking him through prayer, repenting of your sins so that that debris can be cleared of your heart? There's only one path that leads to true security. Times of crisis reveal what's inside of us. So before we finish... And as the worship team is playing here, I just want to offer you a moment to reflect on that key question. Let me give you a moment just to be silent and do that. What, where do you find your security? Take a moment to, to think and pray on that. First Samuel 31 ends on a really gruesome note. But thankfully, that is not the end of the story. Because ironically, the death of Saul points ahead to a similar but better story. A thousand years later, another king would come from the line of David. And he too would face a crisis. But he would not consult a medium. Rather, he would pray to his father in the garden. He would predict his own death. And when the time came, he would not fight back or he would not allow others to fight back. Instead, he would allow a spear to pierce his side as he hung on a tree. He didn't pick up any weapons, but he submitted to the Father's will. And friends, as you go today, I want you to know this is the story. This, this, this is the story that it's all about. I don't know what you're walking through today, but I do know this. Jesus Christ died 
on a cross that you and I can have the security, the love, the acceptance, and the purpose that we're all longing for. His sacrifice is the only security system worth pursuing. It's the only cause worth giving your life for. He loves you. He died for you. He is the king we need. And when I look at my own life and at the times that I feel scared and insecure, the reality is that I'm not looking at the cross. Can we look there today? Can we find our security there today? I pray that we can for God's glory. Amen. Let's sing one final.